Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Killer Psyche ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. A listener note. This episode contains adult content and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. The night of May 19, 1983, was a quiet one for the doctors and nurses at the Mackenzie Willamette Emergency Room in Springfield, Oregon. But all that changed a few minutes before 10.30 p.m. when a car horn blasted outside, summoning the nurses in the ER. A woman was standing by the car. She calmly told them that someone had shot her children. And then she begged the nurses to help them. But when they opened the car door, the nurses realized that it was not going to be that simple. The nurses lifted a little girl out of the car and rushed her into the emergency room. Calling out a code to alert the hospital staff of an incoming emergency, nurses and doctors returned outside where they found two more children a boy gasping for air in the back seat, and another young girl who was face down and appeared not to be breathing. As doctors and nurses worked furiously to save the children, the mother looked on blankly. She was not crying, and she did not appear nervous. Those who were there that night believed her flatness could have been from shock. And if we did not know the ending of this tale, we might just believe that. The mother, Diane Downs, told how she and the children had been the victims of a man trying to steal her car. But Diane was no victim. As a Killer Psyche listener, you'll love Audible's new pulse-pounding collection of exclusive thrillers that are guaranteed to keep you on the edge of your seat. With captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances, their titles are brought to life. I recommend The Killer Across the Table by John Douglas, my mentor at the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, and his co-author, Mark Olshacker. It is great. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. That's audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. Killer Psyche is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
From Wondery and Treefort, I'm Candace DeLong, and this is the second season of Killer Psyche. I've spent five decades studying people's minds through my work as an FBI profiler and psychiatric nurse. I've interviewed lots of murderers, including serial killers. And the question of why they did it is what I get asked time and time again. It is difficult to get a satisfying answer without diving deep into their mindsets. So that's what we're doing. And I will give you my best analysis in this series of what made them do what they did. This episode is Diane Downs, Part One. As the doctors worked furiously to save the children, the police arrived. Diane told them that she and the children were coming back from a friend's house and were taking a new route. She said there was a man standing in the middle of the road flagging her down. She got out of the car to ask him what he wanted. He told her that he wanted her car. Diane told police that she said, you've got to be kidding, and refused. The assailant pushed her to the back of the car and then put his hand inside the window and shot her children who were asleep in the vehicle. Diane says that she then pretended to throw her keys into the brush to draw him away. He fired the weapon at Diane, who then got in her car and took off. She sustained wounds to one of her arms. The radial bone had been shattered by a bullet. Diane's seven-year-old daughter, Cheryl, sustained the most trauma. She had been shot twice at close range. One bullet went through the left shoulder blade, damaging her aorta, trachea, and ribs, and the other went into her left shoulder. Her oldest daughter, eight-year-old Christy, suffered from two gunshot wounds to her chest, and her three-year-old son, Danny, had been shot in the back. Diane described the shooter as a white male around five foot nine with shaggy hair and an unshaven face. As the police searched the streets and woods for this man, Diane's oldest daughter, Cheryl, was declared dead. Doctors determined that she had died on the way to the hospital. Christy and Danny remained in critical condition. After taking her statement at the hospital, the police asked Diane to go with them to the site of the shooting. On the way, Diane poured out the details of her story. The police felt that there was something not quite right with Diane's story, but they were not certain what it was. They guessed that she might know the shooter and was covering up for him. Some key questions bothered them. 
why did the shooter not kill her first and just take the car? And how did the killer know that the kids were there? These were just the beginning of their doubts. The detectives then searched Diane's house. The house was bare. There was no couch, no table, and no chairs. The refrigerator had no food. And the only pictures up were of Diane and a man. The police were confused. They knew Diane had just moved to Oregon in April, so that could possibly explain the lack of furniture. But why were there no pictures of the kids or any signs of them in the house? And why was there no food, especially with three children? Diane requested that the police retrieve only one object and bring it to the hospital, her diary. When they found it, the detective saw that it contained passages and love letters written to a man named Robert Nick Knickerbocker. There were actually stacks of letters and cards addressed to him scattered throughout the house. The police assumed that this was the man in the photographs. They also remembered that doctors told them Diane had a large rose tattoo with the name Nick below it. The search of her house yielded nothing, except that Diane had a relationship of some kind with a man named Nick. The police found Diane's behavior peculiar. Her flat affect and lack of emotion troubled them. Diane seemed more worried about the condition of her car than her children. And four days after the shooting, Diane appeared on a television show reenacting the night of the murder. The detectives noted that she was laughing and making jokes. In fact, she appeared on multiple news programs, as many as she could, it seemed. All this while two of her surviving children were fighting for their lives in the hospital. But it was Dr. Wilhite who had operated on Christie who held the greatest suspicions. In a 2019 interview, the doctor told ABC News that when he went to update Diane on Christie's grave condition, she did not shed a single tear. Quote, She says things to me like, boy, this really has spoiled my vacation. And she also says, that really ruined my new car. I got blood all over the back seat of it. I knew within 30 minutes of talking with that woman that she was guilty. The doctor became even more concerned when Diane told him that she knew that Christy was brain dead and told him that she wanted him to, quote, pull the plug. Of course, Willite refused and took his concerns to a judge who made him and another doctor Christie's legal guardians. Quote, then we were free to treat her as need be, and Christie's mother, Diane, 
could say whatever she wanted. We just ignored it. The district attorney, Fred Hugie, was aware of the turn in suspicion towards Diane. He was at the hospital every day, sitting at Christy and Danny's bedside. And if he was not there, Paul Alton, the assistant DA, was. Fred had formed an attachment with the children and was determined to bring their attacker to justice. Paul was there the first time Diane came to Christie's hospital room. Diane grabbed Christie's hand and stared into her eyes. There were no tears or smiles from Diane. And although Diane told Christie she loved her, it was more of a hiss than a loving whisper. The most interesting thing about the interaction with her mother was Christie's vital signs. Her heart rate spiked to 147 beats per minute while Diane was in the room. The normal heart rate for a child her size and age would be about 90 beats per minute. Doctors and nurses confirmed that Christie's heart rate spiked every time Diane entered the room. Police had looked at everyone and anyone that could have been involved with the shooting, even Diane's ex-husband, Steve, but none of their leads panned out. Their investigation now became solely focused on Diane. But the big question remained, why? What would make a mother kill her children? This is a question we address a lot on Killer Psyche. But with Diane, the question is more, why not? The answer lay within Diane's diary and the man named Nick. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? As the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. Its advanced technology protects every room, window, and door of your home while cameras keep watch for suspicious activity 24-7, all for less than a dollar a day. And there's no long-term contract, ever. I love Simply Safe because it's so straightforward and easy to install. Knowing that my home is protected 24-7 gives me so much peace of mind. It's great that I can always check on my home through the app on my phone. Protect your home today. My listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash psyche. That's simplysafe.com slash psyche. There's no safe like Simply Safe. This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it the glamour of the roaring 20s wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind boggling puzzles. It's all about observation, intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. 
Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson Downs was born August 7, 1955, in Phoenix, Arizona. Diane was the oldest of five children, and her parents, Wes and Willa Dean, ran a strict conservative Baptist household. Diane's memory of her childhood was that she was, quote, ignored by her mother and tormented by her father. She was a child without friends. Diane's brothers and sisters were born in quick succession, and her mother, Willadine, was young and overwhelmed. As a fundamentalist Southern Baptist, she believed that a wife should be subservient to her husband. And so, Willadine put Wes's needs before her children's. Diane would go on to say that other than church, the family just did not interact. She was extremely intelligent, but kids at school isolated and bullied her. According to Anne Rule's book, Small Sacrifices, Diane told her, quote, I don't know why I wasn't liked. It started in first grade. I suppose I resented it and became angry. I turned against them and wouldn't play with them. Diane's social standing and lack of confidence did not affect her schoolwork. Her father made his children read the dictionary in their spare time, and her grades were good. But Diane later said that she felt invisible and was screaming for someone to notice her. In Anne Rule's book, she said, Quote, you go inside yourself. That's the same as blanking out. You're screaming inside. Diane's relationship with her father was not good. Not only would he forbid her from participating in social activities, but he controlled her appearance as well. When she was in seventh grade, her father saw a man with long hair and could not stop talking about it. Inexplicably, he ordered Diane to cut her hair and to get a perm, making her look, she said, like little orphan Annie. Other than that, her family seemed not to notice her at all. But Diane was determined to change that any way she could. Unfortunately, her father did turn his attention to her, but not in the way she hoped. At the age of 12, Wes began to sexually abuse her. He would come into her room late at night or take her on rides in his car. Diane was terrified but said she could not resist him because he was an authority figure. She would simply blank out. By the end of that year, Diane had become so depressed that she cut her wrists. Not deep, 
since she later confessed that she was too scared to inflict pain on herself. Her parents never asked Diane about the scars. The abuse was taking a toll. She had become physically ill from lack of sleep. A trip to the doctor did not help. Diane would not admit anything to him. But when she and Wes left the doctor, Diane had had enough. Her father began to drive through the desert, telling her to take off her shirt, getting angry after she initially resisted. When he then demanded that she take off her bra, Diane began to scream. She tried to open the door of the car and jump out, but her father caught her and locked her inside. They did not notice that a highway patrolman had been following them for several miles. He saw the commotion in Wes's car and pulled him over. The trooper observed that Diane was crying and buttoning up her shirt. He asked her several times if she was okay, but she would not tell him the truth. In her account of the story to Anne Rule, Diane said, quote, I couldn't tell him. I had to shield myself and my mom and my brothers and sisters. If my dad went to jail, we'd have no food or house. The trooper made Wes exit the car and talk to him out of Diane's earshot. She could not hear what was being said, but it looked as though the officer was angry and threatening her father. The sexual abuse stopped immediately after that. I love that highway patrolman. At the age of 14, Diane went through a profound change. She became a compulsive talker. She would talk to anyone and everyone about her innermost thoughts and dreams. This new habit was annoying to some and did not win her a lot of friends. Diane was like that with everyone, except her father. With her father, Diane was silent and did what she was told. She was not allowed to cry. She developed a habit of laughing instead, even when it was completely inappropriate. Diane's emotions were unpredictable. They would alternate from depression to elation. But no one knew that because she hid this with a constant smile, or rather a smirk on her face. The one thing Diane found solace in was animals. Unfortunately, her father would slaughter any animal that was sick or could provide food often killing them with Diane right beside him, begging him not to do it. When violence or sex abuse occurred, Diane would often experience periods of blacking out or, as we mentioned before, zoning out. The clinical term for this is dissociation. Psychotherapist Sherry Jacobson writes that, quote, Dissociation is when, instead of staying present in the face of stress, 
you exit your thoughts, feelings, and bodily sensations and zone out. It's considered a defense mechanism in psychoanalytic theory. It is a common experience for victims of child sex abuse. The theory is the actual event is so unbelievably psychologically and physically traumatizing that the child's consciousness rescues the child by the dissociation. I've had patients tell me that when they were being abused, they did not see, feel, or hear anything, but they recall floating up at the ceiling, looking down, and feeling nothing. It makes sense that dissociation is a protective measure or defense mechanism, as Dr. Jacobson says, but it is also frequently the spawn of multiple personality disorder. In the famous book, Sybil, that is exactly what spawned her multiple personality disorder. But Diane Downs does not suffer from that. Diane has plenty of problems, but multiple personality disorder is not one of them. Diane fantasized about love and the perfect mate to take her away from her father. At the age of 15, Diane thought she found it in the form of Steve Downs. Steve was rebellious and Diane was attracted to him immediately. Their relationship became intimate shortly after they started to date. Diane loved that he made her feel attractive and even better, her parents hated their relationship. Quote, he beat people up over me. He made me feel like I was important. He was everything my parents did not like. If their life was wrong, then what they hated should be better. So I chose Steve. Steve was not always emotionally supportive. When Diane told him about the abuse she suffered at the hands of her father, he did not know what to do. So he promptly changed the subject. Diane craved power, especially power over her own life. She turned to brutally scratching her own face to get her father to stop hitting her or just to scare him. Diane would hurt herself before he could. And choosing Steve was also in her power. But Diane soon discovered that she could not control everything. She was desperate to get out of her family's home. But at that time, Steve was no help. In 1972, he enlisted in the United States Navy after graduating high school. So when an opportunity came up for Diane to go to college, she jumped at the chance. But her college career did not last long. The college was a strict Baptist Bible college, and Diane was to go there to study to be a Christian missionary. It was Diane's first experience away from her parents' clutches, 
and Diane enjoyed every minute of it. She apparently enjoyed it too much because she was expelled after two semesters for, quote, promiscuity. Diane moved back home and was once again under her father's watch. When Steve returned from the Navy, Wes would wait at Diane's work to make sure that she went home instead of with Steve. After her taste of freedom at college, Wes's strict control angered and frustrated Diane. After not returning home from a date one night, her father showed up at Steve's house with a shotgun and demanded they get married, which they did one week later. Diane and Steve married on November 13, 1973, and Diane was finally free of her parents. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Whether it's routine maintenance, an emergency repair, or a dream project, Angie lets you browse homeowner reviews, compare quotes from multiple local pros, and even book a service instantly. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Life did not become sunshine and lollipops for Diane. Steve was no longer on his best behavior, and he was gone from the house the majority of the time. Two weeks after they were married, Steve went on a date with another girl. He explained to Diane that he had made the date before they were married, and it would be rude to cancel. To add insult to injury, Steve asked Diane to iron his pants for the night, which she did. I, however, would have had a much different answer for Steve. Steve no longer made her feel special. In fact, she felt betrayed and decided that Steve only wanted her for sex. Diane decided that if he didn't love her, she would have someone that would. That's right, I said, have. Diane was determined to have a baby. She reasoned that the baby would have to love her unconditionally and would not leave her. It would be, quote, pure love, and it would be a part of her. Although Steve wanted to wait before he started a family, Diane intentionally got pregnant almost immediately. Diane loved being pregnant. She said that was when she felt the most serene and whole in her life. Steve, however, uh, not so happy. He was worried that he would not be able to support his family. His viewpoint changed when he was picked to be in a commercial for Gillette razor blades. Steve thought this was the beginning of a huge career. 
Steve sent Diane home to her parents until the commercial was filmed. Diane was not happy. But Steve never filmed the commercial. Right before it was supposed to happen, a car Steve was working on exploded and he was hospitalized for severe burns. The commercial did not wait for him to heal and his dreams of modeling went out the window. After he was released from the hospital, Steve joined Diane at her parents' home, and once again, Diane was trapped. She did have something to look forward to, the birth of her first child, a daughter named Christy. Diane loved that Christy focused her attention on her, as most babies do with their mother. But the love and attention that Christy showed her made her despise Steve's lack of interest even more. The marriage continued its downward spiral as Steve continued his infidelities. Diane claimed that he was jealous and even choked and hit her. She compared Steve to her father, saying that he had no patience and he was mean. Even Christy could not fill the void that Diane was experiencing. She wanted more from life. When Christy was not yet six months old, Diane left her home in Chandler, Arizona, drove to Phoenix, and joined the Air Force. She left Steve to take care of Christy while she attended basic training in Texas. Diane claims she called home often to check on Christy and was told that Steve was leaving their infant daughter alone in the house and that Steve had, quote, dropped her on her head. Steve remembers it differently. He said that Diane did call frequently, but it was to beg him to get her out of the service, even threatening to go AWOL. After only three weeks, Diane was discharged due to terrible blisters she had developed. When Diane came home, she and Christy went back and forth from Steve to her parents. Steve would send Diane and the baby to them, and they would send Diane back with the message that she was now Steve's responsibility. Diane, once again, felt that she had no control over her life. So she did what anybody would do in that situation. She got pregnant again on purpose. Steve felt betrayed but was hopeful that it would be a son. That was not to be, and his daughter, Cheryl, arrived two days before his 21st birthday in 1976. But Cheryl was not the calm baby that Christy had been. Cheryl suffered from extreme colic and would not sleep, nor would she stop screaming. Steve and Diane agreed That would be the end of their baby-making, and Steve got a vasectomy. But the vasectomy did not work, and Diane 
got pregnant again. She decided to have an abortion, and Steve had his vasectomy redone. On Halloween of 1976, Diane took both children and ran to relatives in Texas, but she returned to Steve only a week later. In 1977, she left again, this time to her sister in Flagstaff, Arizona. Diane worked as a concrete truck driver and was happy until her boss raped her. She ran back to Steve, but once again left, this time to Stockton, California, where her parents now lived. Diane's parents gave her six weeks to find a suitable job. When she failed to do so, they sent her back, you guessed it, to Steve. Steve always accepted her back, even though they did not speak to each other and he was gone every night. But Diane no longer cared. In 1979, Diane encountered an anti-abortion group and began to feel guilty about her abortion two years earlier. Diane named the unborn fetus Carrie, and she was now obsessed with replacing Carrie and was determined to get pregnant again. Diane believed that she could give a new baby the soul of the one she aborted. Steve refused to have his vasectomy reversed, so Diane began to look elsewhere. Although she and Steve were working at the same company, Diane hunted for a donor there. 23-year-old Diane began sexual affairs with many men at work. She flirted and used every trick in her arsenal to seduce the men she wanted. Diane did not care if they were married or not. She had a purpose and would do whatever was necessary to get what she wanted. This is typical behavior for someone who has a histrionic personality disorder, or HPD. People with this disorder often use their appearance and inappropriate, seductive behavior to get attention. Attention is the key word here. They need to be noticed and will do almost anything, dramatically, to get people to take notice. This is especially true for someone like Diane, who felt invisible most of her life. She felt invisible until she met Steve, and now that marriage was falling apart. People with HPD tend to have intense emotions and mood swings, which we have talked about Diane experiencing. It is common for people with HPD to have other personality disorders, including antisocial and narcissistic, two disorders that Diane was later diagnosed with. But we'll get to that and a little more on HPD in a second. Diane's mission to replace Carrie was underway, and she found her donor, a 19-year-old 
co-worker. As always, Diane became pregnant on the very first try. Steve discovered the affair and was furious. He actually found them in bed and confronted them, demanding that Diane come home with him. But she refused to leave. And a week later, Diane was pregnant. Both men, Steve and the co-worker she was having an affair with, encouraged her to have another abortion, which she refused. After Diane gave birth, she was disappointed. The baby was a boy, and therefore she did not believe it was the soul of Carrie. Steve was so happy the baby was a boy, he did not even care that it wasn't his biological son. He decided to raise him as his own. Diane loved being pregnant, but raising the children, that was a different matter. The stress of financial issues did not help. Steve and Diane made only $20,000 a year combined. With three children to feed, tempers began to flare and the couple began to get into physical altercations. Diane's depression returned and she now viewed Steve as she viewed her father. She was once again trapped. That anger boiled over into her treatment of the children and they physically took the brunt of her anger. Diane felt the children did not love her as she deserved. And because of that, they were failing at their purpose. It was all about Diane and what was happening to her or what she was not getting. I think you know what that screams, Killer Psyche listeners. Begins with an N, narcissism. And Diane's self-centeredness reveals that she had it in spades. Join us next week, and we'll continue our discussion about Diane Downs. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Killer Psyche ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. From Wondery and Treefort Media, this is Killer Psyche. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. This episode was written and produced by Lisa Ammerman and Julie Burke. Director of Research is Ann Blue. Mix and sound design by Joshua Morales. Supervising audio producer, Maxwell Carney. Head of audio, Tom Monahan. With audio assistance from Katie Corpy and Matt Dyson. Editorial support, Alexander McCall. Host support from Allison Sandler. Renee Levesque is our production manager. Jada Williams is our production coordinator. Oscar Guido is the producer from Treefort Media. From Amazon Music and Wondery, producer is Stephanie Wachning. And the co-executive producer is Julie Burke. Lastly, 
Our executive producers are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort and Marshall Louie and Erin O'Flaherty for Wondery. The series is produced by Wondery and Treefort Media. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.